<clears throat> each evening we'll have a talk that will give some of the larger framework of our practice. And we want to invite the listening to the talks as being itself a form of practice. And this could mean that you stay connected with your body and listen more from the intuition and the heart. In other words, try to stay present with body and mind and heart. So it can be itself a practice of letting the words enter less in a more discursive way and more in a way that meets uh, one's whole being. I want to talk in a little more depth this evening about this theme of the winter solstice and embracing the dark and inviting the light. Just to say again that it is a very special time and has been very crucial in most cultures, that most cultures at this time in the Northern Hemisphere at the time of the winter solstice, there was some way of going inward, whether through ritual or ceremony. Some sense of renewal in many cultures This was a time of uh, really praying and calling for renewal, the renewal of the earth at the time of stillness, at the time when the sun is the force really responsible for the crops, for life. And some of the great Uh, monuments that we know of, like Stonehenge, are connected with being able to know exactly when the winter solstice is occurring. And literally the the term solstice means uh, sun standing still. This very special point that we're approaching. There's a way in which as we come on retreat, we can be like the earth. We can be a little warmer maybe, but we can be, we can have qualities of stillness, of being able to be with the darkness. And like the many cultures, like the function of the solstice in many cultures, we can also seek renewal. You know, we're not so much seeking escape from our everyday lives, but more a sense of renewal. It's something which can occur on personal levels and also very much on cultural levels. You know, we're we're at a time of, you know, great challenges. And it seems likely that these will be accelerating in the next years, the great, you know, the great systemic issues of our times. You know, climate disruption and further marginalization of targeted people, economic inequality, international instability. These are all um, these are all great challenges which promise to get harder. And in this context, um, there can be a tremendous role for retreats. A little bit paradoxically. You know, when I've sometimes worked with activists, there often can be a sense, oh, I gotta just be there all the time, be out there. And that's actually not uh, conducive to the most effective ways to respond in the world, that the, it's a very powerful role for retreat. The, the British historian uh, Toynbee said that the dynamic of cultural renewal is a cycle of withdrawal and return. 
I think that's true personally. I think that's true culturally. And so, again, we want to appreciate the uh, choice to be on retreat, that it it can be uh, a great force for renewal. Sometimes that's not always obvious on the end of the first full day of a retreat. Anyone relate to that? (laughs) Okay, so... um, But it changes. So we've come on retreat and we've learned further of the core nature of our practice or we've remembered that basic practice if we're more experienced. In the, in the old text, the uh, foundations of mindfulness discourse uh, given by the Buddha you know, over 2,500 years ago, he said, go to a forest or an empty hut, find solitude, set your body erect and establish mindfulness. Those are the basic instructions. And this hall qualifies as an empty hut. It's a big hut, but we have that, we have that sense of, uh, can have that sense, of, I think as Heather was saying, of uh, being alone with others. It's a phrase from Stephen Batchelor. Being alone with others, having a sense of exploring our own solitude, but with support and knowing that others are doing it. And one of our hopes for the groups and for hearing from others as we learn really how similar our minds and hearts and bodies are. You know, often before we begin practice, we may think that we have unique problems. I am uniquely problematic as a human being. Should I ask for a show of hands for that? (laughs) Maybe not. Not for that one, but um, as we learn, as we practice more, we see that we are collectively problematic. Joking a little bit, but we are collectively problematic. In a sense, it's good news because we're in the same boat together. So we find the appropriate empty hut And we learn to stabilize attention. We learn to move away from distraction. We develop the quality that uh, is translated usually as concentration, but that means uh, the original language, the word is samadhi, which uh, etymologically means placing together. And we can think of it more as a gathering. We bring the different parts of our experience together, we gather, we stabilize, we become less distracted. And that settling of attention is both uh, often where we start in a given sitting, in uh, a given retreat, but we return to it. It's really, uh, meditation is really an art form. And we return, and we, the part of our goal, particularly for people who are newer, is to give you a a toolbox of various tools of practice. And the art of meditation is to know which tool is appropriate given what's happening. It's really the, the aim of practice isn't so much to have calm or peace or wonderful experiences. It's to be able to be, have a skillful response to whatever the situation is. Do you get the shift there? So it's really about wise and compassionate response moment to moment. That's the long-term aim of our practice. That's what we train in. That's what we want to bring back to our daily lives. Wise and compassionate response moment to moment. So we develop some stability 
And then we, then we cultivate this quality of mindfulness, of being present with experience. It has qualities of clear seeing, seeing what's present. And we also like to emphasize the way that in the long term it integrates with metta or, or friendliness or warmth. You know, our, our dear friend and colleague Sylvia Borstein has a wonderful way of summarizing the core nature of our practice, really of mindfulness practice. She says, can we meet each moment fully? Can we meet each moment as a friend? Meet each moment fully, meet each moment as a friend. I could end the talk right now and say, okay, go out and practice, or stay here and practice, we'll go out. And <laughs> or we'll stay, we'll practice, whatever. But um, that's, you know, that's it, right? We'll probably say numerous times during the retreat, that's it. That's it. Just remember that. That's all you need. In some traditions, these are called the PITH, P-I-T-H, instructions. Just remember that. Stay with it. That's all you need. As is said in Jewish tradition, at times, the rest is commentary. So the rest of my talk is commentary. (laughs) So through stabilizing attention and through mindfulness, we cultivate clear seeing, we develop insight, which is the reason we call this insight practice. We develop insight And we develop insight particularly into the different patterns of our experience. Some of those insights are personal. We see, oh, I do this. Oh, I do that. One of my big insights when I began practice was um, that I plan so much. If you had asked me before I began to meditate, do you plan a lot? I would have said the normal amount. But I found... I was a student at the time, and I was just, I had some report due, like in two days that I had to give publicly. I would rehearse it like 80 times in a 30-minute sitting. One of my deep insights was 20 would be quite enough. (laughs) Uh, No, it's just, and I I came to see, oh, it's a personal habit. My, My sister got an advanced degree in planning. It's called city planning, and she makes her life, it makes her livelihood as a, as a health planner. And she's also a meditator. So, so some of the insights are personal, and some of them are more about the very nature of experience. We come to see, in particular, the impermanence of things, how things change. And something to attend to as we look at our experience, notice how things arise and pass. We also, in particular, look at where we are reactive, where we push away things, where we find something that's happening that we think shouldn't be happening. I'm sleepy. Go away, sleepiness. Or I have a thought I don't like, or a difficult emotion. And we we really want to track, in particular, our reactivity. And I'll say more about that a little bit later. We also track when when we grab hold of something, when we grasp. Sometimes a little more subtle, but we can notice that at different times. And that's particularly, we want to notice those patterns. We want to see more clearly. And one of the other areas that's pointed to as an area of fundamental insight is also to see when a strong sense of self is present. We look into the very nature of that strong sense of self. And at times we learn to experience more the flow of phenomena without that strong sense of self.
So having established that practice, we can bring our attention to some of these themes related to the winter solstice, themes of darkness and light. And for the, for the rest of the talk, I want to uh, explore several different themes related to darkness and light under the general rubric of embracing the dark and inviting the light. So I want to talk about a few different dimensions of being with the dark. One of the dimensions is that, that uh, sense of stopping, of coming more to stillness, much like the earth at this time. A second aspect is being with darkness as mystery, being with the unknown, also a very fundamental quality of our practice. We learn to be with the unknown. A third sense of darkness that's there at times in in our language is sometimes the darkness as what's difficult. So part of our practice is to be with the difficult. And we also learn, uh, I think, how to be with the unknown and a sense of darkness as something generative and fertile. You know, much like a womb, like out of that darkness comes something uh, that's a gift, that's amazing. Then I also want to point to a few aspects in which we uh, invite the light in which we open to the light. One of them is in seeing the ways that when we're with the darkness, there come gifts of light from the darkness. That being with darkness in those different ways, and you could see it in that sense of darkness as fertile or generative, that um, when we can be with the darkness, there comes a gift, there comes light, out of the darkness. And we can also deliberately invite the light in the sense of positive or beautiful qualities, qualities of awakening or enlightenment. And we can also, as our practice deepens, start to experience that sense of uh, ourselves as increasingly beings of light. And as that matures, as that sense of the light in our own being matures, we actually see that it also includes the darkness. That they're not, in a sense, ultimately separate. And I'll point to that at the end of the retreat. End of the talk. Maybe end of the retreat also. So you can see that in this sense, uh, dark and light are not simply uh, some way of talking about what's not good and what's good. You know, it's very common in our culture. We, have, we often have a sense of dark as negative, dark as bad, and you know, maybe exclusively that sense of darkness and difficulty. And we sometimes have attachment to, to light. Um, this is from uh, a poet and uh, teacher Michael Mead. He actually wrote this right after 9-11. He said, those who would know the world and recover the dream of life must pass through the darkened center, traveling where no ideology can know the meanings in the human soul. Here, success and speed are an encumbrance when we're going into what's dark. It is better to move carefully and examine whatever appears. On most days, America fears the darkness. The open 24-hour signs and lights always on say that. The rejection of darker people says that. The win-at-any-cost dogma says that. Yet always climbing to the top and rising to the light casts an increasing shadow over the world and loses touch with many things that the earth darkly knows. So there's that invitation to open and and explore this sense of darkness in these several senses that I'm talking about. So first, the sense of being with the darkness as stopping, as finding, finding stillness, very much like the earth, and really 
Um, it means partly to move out of that uh, busyness that's so common in the culture and even maybe even more common now. Do you know what's happening at the shopping centers probably right as we speak? <laughs> are, you, are you glad you're here? <laughs> I won't, I won't follow that too closely. <laughs> yeah. So we, we kind of, uh, and we can, can we feel the momentum of the busyness even today? So we, we, part of this practice is to learn to come to stillness more, learn to stop the momentum. And for that, we, it's helpful as we've done to minimize the input. It can be challenging, it can be hard, but it's really the, the approach here. And then we work with the practice of settling and samadhi or concentration to be able to not be so driven by the habits of mind. And that makes possible the clear seeing. And so we train in that, uh, that stopping, the continual just noticing and coming back to the breath, to, to more stillness of mind. And it's important in that coming back really to both have that steady, persistent return to the breath or whatever is primary, but to do so with a sense of ease. Another one of the secrets of how the mind and heart and body develop is that we really need this... uh, paradoxical combination of ease, relaxation, ease and relaxation on the one side and persistence and discipline on the other. Usually in our lives, those don't go together, do they? And that's what we're after. That's what we're after with our practice. So some of us may find that we need to uh, call more on the discipline or on the persistence. And some of us may need to call more on the ease and relaxation. Maybe we're a little tight or there's a little bit of sense of strain or striving. So it's always a great question to ask at the beginning of a, a session when we're setting that intention that John invited us to, to do, to ask, what's called for now? Is it a little more persistence or a little more ease? And it's okay to say both. <laughs> so we, we come to that greater stillness. And part of the, the point of stopping and, sti- and being more still is to listen. You know, one of the great metaphors of all of spiritual practice is the metaphor of listening. Some of you know the great Tibetan yogi Milarepa is often portrayed in uh, images and tankas with the hand to the ear, listening. And Kuan Yin, who's at the back of our hall, the Bodhisattva of compassion, is said to be she who listens to the cries of the world. And so in a way, we, we cultivate that stillness. We stop in order to listen, in order to be less distracted. Ultimately, we're going to listen to what is alive in ourselves, what wants to move, what's there. This is from the poet Rilke, uh, translated by uh, Joanna Macy and Anita Barrows. All creation holds its breath, listening within me, because to hear you, I keep silent. There's also a sense of being with the darkness as being with the unknown, which really follows from that sense of listening. We want to cultivate a kind of listening that maybe listens for something that's unexpected or we don't know what will occur. And there's always a mystery of being on retreat. You know, as, I, as I suggested last night, 
we often come with expectations and plans, then some of them hold up for a little while, but there's really a beauty of being on retreat and just saying, let me just see what's there. It's like going beneath the surface and saying, what will I find? For me, that took a while. You know, I, I had to learn from having very definite plans for retreats. It does lead to suffering. <laughs> and, you know, it took some time, but after a while I would come to a retreat and say, ah, oh, what will arise on this retreat? And again, maybe that's something that can be there after there's some base, some stability, some confidence. And for some of us, this is the first retreat, right? And um, you can see if you can invite that quality of the unknown. A practice that I have sometimes done at the beginning of a session is to say, what will occur in this session? I don't know. Let the unknown manifest. You could say that at the beginning of a session. This is what will occur is mysterious. Let it occur. I don't know. Let me be open. How does that sound? Yeah. It brings life and interest, right, to to our practice. And so we can be, in a a way, be open to what's mysterious, to what's uh, unknown. Along the way, we notice where we think this should happen or that should happen, where we have more fixed views that occur. I should definitely not be having strong sensations in my shoulder. They did not mention that in the promotional literature for Spirit Rock. (laughs) Why is this happening? Isn't this about bliss? deep insight, the heart opening, and living happily ever after. I actually thought that when I was first practicing. Maybe I should ask. I like like to ask for shows of hands a lot. How many? Well, I'll say what mine was. My first years, I thought that I would meditate, get to some level of enlightenment or other. All my problems would be worked out. Thank you very much. (laughs) All my problems would be worked out and, you know, I don't know what it would, I didn't have any plan for what would happen after that. (laughs) But that was my scenario for meditation and it, you, you know, it didn't work out that way. So, so the invitation is to have this sense of openness. And again, it really uh, first does require that sense of stability. So having that stability can be very helpful, but even an openness if there's not stability. That's part of our practice. Some of the instructions are to, in a way, be careful about going too much to the past or too much to the future. And again, sometimes the past or future call us in a very strong way. In the sense it's happening, we need to attend to it. To the extent that we have some direction, we can try to not follow so much the past or the future. This is from the, the Buddha. Do not pursue the past. Do not lose yourself in the future. The past no longer is. The future has not yet come. Looking deeply at life as it is in the very here and now, the practitioner dwells in stability and freedom. Just one sort of further comment on that. Um, Something that I've discovered also is that there, in many ways, there can be a strong call from the past. And there can be a strong 
movement to the future, what we can do is treat those as occurrences appearing in the present. You know, for example, there could be some grief related to the past that appears strongly. And that can be something that we work with as an experience of sadness and grief happening in the present moment without going so much into the uh, narratives or the scenarios. We can treat it as something happening with the mind and the body and the heart in the moment. And the same thing with things oriented to the future. I can see, oh, I have some anxiety about the future. Can I relate to that more as a present experience? And, and just one suggestion which I have, which has come out of my own experience, is that uh, many of us have unresolved issues. Does anyone have an unresolved issue? <laughs> okay, about a third of the group. <laughs> about a third of the group raised their hand quickly. Um, but many of us have unresolved issues, and they often call on us in retreats, like, okay, you know, you finished this, you finished that, you got your gifts, you did all your things on your to-do list, how about dealing with this un- big unresolved issue right now? You have five days. <laughs> and um, there can be insights about unresolved issues. Here's a suggestion that comes out of my own experience. Um, if we follow the thoughts continually about how to resolve that unresolved issue, which is extremely tempting. Has anyone done a little bit of that today? Okay, it's, it's very tempting. So one practical suggestion that in a way both recognizes the value of being here for the training and that also recognizes that the unresolved issue is important is to set a time, maybe the last morning, maybe after breakfast, and we say, I will still in a relatively quiet state, hopefully, I will give attention to that unresolved issue, maybe journal, take 20 minutes, take a walk, reflect, do some writing, whatever, but that you can work on that at the end of the retreat. And if if that resonates with you, It's a way actually of protecting the retreat and the practice so that you just say, yes, we'll attend to that later. 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 (laughs) A little bit like a puppy. (laughs) Later. And if that resonates, that can be a very skillful way of both making use of the insights that may arise and coming back to it at the end of the retreat, but also protecting the time really for the training that it is. So see if that resonates. And that I've done that for retreats for years. And it really, it, it, it helps, it protects things. There's another aspect of being with the darkness, which is being with what's difficult. And again, very crucial aspect of our practice is to learn to be with what's difficult in a different way than our conditioned way. And sometimes at retreats, we do have different challenges come up, physical, emotional, different thoughts, and so forth. Uh, The poet Yeats had a phrase that he said that sometimes it's as if we are lying down in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. In fact, my own practice has often, especially in the first years, seemed to alternate between retreats which were uplifting, inspiring, and wonderful, with retreats which were quite difficult, where I looked at fear or self-judgment, and which ultimately, when I stayed with it, actually were still inspiring and wonderful, but in a different way. And so part of the practice is being, we might say, with the darkness is being with the difficult. There's a cartoon which I like, which shows a young meditator sitting 
with great determination. And she says, today I shall live in the present moment. Unless the present moment is unpleasant, in which case I will eat a cookie. (laughs) So we're looking actually for an alternative approach, right? Can I be with the difficult? When it arises, we don't go looking for the difficult, but when it arises, can I be with it? And there's a really fundamental teaching, which is, I think, uh, for me, one of the ways that the uh, most concisely communicates the central teaching of the Four Noble Truths. And this is the teaching of the Two Arrows, which is one of my favorite teachings. And I um, probably don't have a retreat which goes by without me teaching it. (laughs) So here it is. And it really, really, um, as it were, cuts to the chase. Everyone at times experiences the unpleasant. Correct? Some more than others, but at times there is unpleasantness in the body, the mind, the emotions. Sometimes we're treated unfairly or unjustly and so forth. So the Buddha asked his practitioners, everyone experiences at times the unpleasant. What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner? And what we'll see is that it's actually in the response once the unpleasant is there. That's what's going to differentiate. So he says, the presence of the unpleasant is like being shot by an arrow. We could say that's the arrow of the unpleasant. In all these different forms, it could appear. He said this is like, this could be called the first arrow What differentiates a practitioner from a non-practitioner, and we are non-practitioners when we are not practicing. (laughs) But what the difference is, is that the non-practitioner will tend to react to the presence of the first arrow and shoot a second arrow. We could say that this is that the person reacts to the unpleasant being there in a few different ways. One might be if there's something where, if there is some physical pain or if there's some physically unpleasant sensation, we might tense around it. We might not want it. We might reject it by clenching or by our thoughts or by our emotions. And this plays a significant role in, in some types of chronic pain. And I've heard from physicians that as much as 80% of some types of chronic pain is not the, actually the original stimulus, but it's the reaction to the stimulus. There's no coincidence that the first area in a medical context where mindfulness was applied was by John Kabat-Zinn for people with chronic pain. Because if you could see, if they could actually learn not to shoot the second arrow, tremendous benefit, right? We can see that pretty easily emotionally, right? I have something difficult happening to me. Maybe someone close to me says something, or someone in my life says something. It feels mean to me. I don't like it. And I react back. You know, I may react back in the moment by saying something mean to that person. That's shooting the second arrow where I judge the other person, that's shooting the second arrow. Where I judge myself, that's shooting the second arrow. Or I have something difficult happen to me and I imagine negative scenarios and in a way I make it worse. An ordinary English way of talking about this teaching is be careful about making a difficulty worse. Very ordinary uh, way ordinary English way of talking about it. And I think it's also important to see that uh, this, this actually has social applications as well. I, I tend to interpret uh, the nonviolence of Gandhi and King as the same teaching. We have received pain, we will not pass it on. We have received the first arrow, 
we will respond with great determination, but not by shooting the second arrow. I see this as all one of a piece. And so it's a very fundamental teaching. It's really a guide for how to be with what's difficult. And to carry it further, what we need is to be able to learn to be present at times when the, the unpleasant is there, when it's workable, to be with unpleasant sensations or unpleasant thoughts, to learn how to be with that when it's workable. If it's too much, if it's overwhelming, then we need to try to come back to balance. But part of the art of mindfulness is to increase the capacity for us to be with what's difficult in a balanced way. It's part of the training here. And that's a way to learn not to shoot the second arrow. And then really to track when we're reactive because one way of talking about the, uh, shooting the second arrow is saying that we're reactive. We are pushing away something. I'm reacting to this. I don't like that. You know? Because it's possible to be with what's unpleasant without shooting the second arrow and still respond skillfully. So very, very crucial teaching. I I travel typically each year and teach in North Carolina and Kentucky. And one of my trips, I had someone who is a hospice nurse. And she talked about a woman who was in hospice who was a double amputee, didn't have too long to live. And she had written at the uh, foot of her bed, you know, let me see if I can remember this. It was an expression of this teaching. It was basically saying, um, I can be with the pain, I will not add to it someone in that situation, more or less giving the same teaching. John Tarrant, a Zen teacher, says, the courage with which we bear our darkness in the sense of difficulty frees others from having to carry it for us. And so there are different ways to work with that. One is to learn to be present with difficult emotions, difficult thoughts. Again, when, we, when, we're, when there's some degree of balance. If we're, not, if we're really way out of balance, if it's too much, then we, what we want to do is to come back to balance. We could do something like metta. We could just pull away temporarily from what's happening. So some kind of um, ability to distinguish between when something is workable and when it's not workable is right at the heart of our practice. And it's sometimes not always um, applied, right? It doesn't help to just be lost in something. It does help to be able to be pretty mindful with something difficult. And then last, I want to talk about darkness as fertile. I better leave time for the light. <laughs> so there, there's also a sense, and you, I think you can already have some sense of if we, if we work with darkness as uh, stopping, darkness as uh, being with the unknown, even darkness of the difficult. You can see how if we're with those forms of darkness, they all can give, a, can give gifts. They all can be, in a sense, generative or fertile. This is from uh, the poet Wendell Berry. To go into the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark. Go without sight and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. Again, very, very mysterious, that sense of having some trust in our own process to to move towards that sense of, of gifts. 
in the Tibetan tradition, there are story, many stories of the beings who are called Dakinis, who visit often at twilight and impart gifts to those whom they visit. There's a, one of the stories um, is a story of the great uh, Indian teacher, uh, Naropa. This is from about the 8th or 9th century in India. And Naropa was the, uh, I think the uh, abbot of a, uh, a school called Nalanda, one of the great learning centers of India at that time. And a Dakini visited him at twilight and asked him, do you understand the teachings? He said, yes. And she broke into tears. And it brought about a kind of a challenge in his system. And he actually acknowledged that I may understand the words, but I don't really get the meaning. And with that, she sent him off to her brother named Talopa, who was a great teacher. And she came, at, came with that gift, the gift of, that came with the uh, twilight that came with the increasing darkness and that he had to admit his darkness in order to receive a gift that he later received. And I, I also think, when I think of this theme, I think always of my, my father, Simon, uh, was blind the last 25 years of his life. And I would sometimes do retreats with him. Quite a few times I did retreats with him where I would be his eyes and I would walk with him to all the sessions, you know. And um, I saw over those 25 years, there are ways in which he blossomed in ways that he wouldn't have with his sight. Something softened, heart opened, quite, quite a powerful process, you know. And there, so there, there are ways in which there can be gifts, in this case, literally, that came out of um, a darkness there. There's also, some of you know, in many cultures, there's also the theme of the blind prophet who would know more than other people do. Mm-hmm. And so out of this resting in the dark uh, comes light. We've seen that in different ways. There come, there come gifts, there come ways of seeing, there comes understanding. This is a very, there's a very nice passage from the uh, wishing bone cycle from the uh, native peoples of the area around Minnesota, southern Canada, just north of there. All the warm nights sleep in moonlight. Keep letting it go into you. Do this all your life. Do this, you will shine outward in old age. The moon will think that you are the moon. So be with the dark. Let the light from the darkness go into you and it will be with you all your life. And so we we have these gifts that come from the darkness. We have insight, we have the learning, we have the knowledge of how to be with difficult experiences. We have the opening to mystery. We have all these ways that we could say that we open towards light. And there are also ways as we practice that there's actually an inner light which develops as well. There, when we do concentration practice, when we do samadhi practice, as the settling deepens and as we're able to be increasingly with what we're focusing on, the mind settles and there can be an increase in inner light of different kinds. Some of you may have experienced even as the mind settles and is quiet, 
and we, we look out at the trees, when the mind's quiet, there can be a kind of shimmering. There's a way in which we seem to open up to awareness itself having a lucid quality, having a quality of light that's there. We can deliberately invite qualities that are positive. In Buddhist tradition, we can remember this teaching of the factors of awakening, the factors of enlightenment, and they can be deliberately invited. So we can work with the light in that way, deliberately to invite more mindfulness, more loving kindness, more patience, more equanimity. It's a way that we can practice to deliberately evoke these Uh, qualities that bring about a sense of the inner light, of the uh, qualities of joy, of kindness, of warmth, and of also that kind of inner radiance I was talking about. And I think I'll finish with that further dimension of light, that one of the ways that we can understand our practice is that as we deepen in the settling, as we deepen in insight, as the mind settles, as our being settles, we can begin to, again, have that sense of the radiance of the mind. Again, sometimes we notice this in a kind of shimmering quality of experience or quality of lucidity that that comes through. One of my favorite passages um, that I actually recite when I practice myself uh, quite often comes from the um, Tibetan tradition uh, connected with an approach called Mahamudra, which means the great symbol or the great gesture. And this is pointing to that radiant quality of our being, the radiant quality of mind. And it goes like this, just a few lines, open like the sky. This is pointing to the nature of our, deep nature of our minds. Open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. And we can sometimes have glimpses of that lucidity or that uh, shining quality. And again, it's a very common metaphor to understand this basic quality of light in the mind. In another Tibetan tradition, it's talked about that the mind is like a self-existing lamp of wisdom, that our deep being is a self-existing lamp of wisdom. And in the Buddhist text, this quality of radiance is also very much understood as linked with metta, as linked with the quality of love and of the the open heart. It's said that when the heart is liberated, the heart and mind are liberated by the quality of loving kindness or metta, that it shines and glows and radiates and is like the radiance of the moon. And that's, that's our nature as we, as we practice, as we practice more. And one of the qualities when that radiance becomes more is that it actually comes to include aspects of what I was calling the dark. That that deep quality of our being, of the mind, can actually be there with the difficult, with the unpleasant, with the unknown, with these different aspects of the darkness. So there's a way in that as we deepen yet more, the light and the darkness interpenetrate. And they're just, they're present and we're beyond, as it were, being caught by the old patterns, the old habits. Initially, 
for moments and for periods of time, and then increasingly for longer periods of time. And so in a way we cultivate this practice of darkness and light at the solstice in a few different ways, in ways that we can, can bring into our daily lives. We, we learn how to stop in order to learn how to move, you know. We learn how to be with the unknown in a way that yields knowing. We learn how to be with the darkness as difficult in a way that leads us to ease, to more ease. And we learn to be with the darkness and increasingly trust its uh, gifts that will come. So we see in a way that there's uh, darkness, or we could say there's light inside the darkness. And again, as we deepen with our sense of the light, there's darkness within the light. I think I'll, I'll close with, a, with another poem. This is by Rilke. And all of what I just said could be summarized as saying, Keep practicing, <laughs> really. It's just, uh, that's, that's what these words are about. This is from a poem called, Let This Darkness Be a Bell Tower. Quiet friend who has come so far, feel how your breathing makes more space around you. Let this darkness be a bell tower and you the bell as you ring. As you ring, what batters you becomes your strength. Move back and forth into the change. What is it like, such pain? If the drink is bitter, turn yourself to wine. In this uncontainable night, be the mystery at the crossroads of your senses. The meaning discovered there And if the world has ceased to hear you, say to the silent earth, I flow. To the rushing water, speak, I am. So my hope for the talk is that these um, outlines of different um, dimensions of darkness and light can uh, hopefully uh, energize us, inspire us, but also be there in different ways in your practice. You know, it, can, it could be at the beginning of a session, you might make an intention. Let me be with the unknown for this session, as if I was entering into the darkness. Let me be with the mysterious. Or... There's difficulty. Can I be with the difficulty and take that as a, a one way of being with the darkness and so forth? Or can I, can I learn how to stop and so forth? And it could be an intention at the beginning of a session or it could also be in the middle of a session, in the middle of a practice period, you notice, oh, I've been having trouble with this difficulty, but it's just an aspect of darkness. And I know what to do. Something like that. Okay. So thank you for your kind attention. And we have, uh, have about 25 minutes of um, walking meditation. And you're welcome to stay in here and do a little more sitting. And uh, at 9 o'clock, we'll come back and possibly have a shortened sitting. What do you think? We'll have a... It's been a long day. We'll have a considerably shorter sitting than is advertised. (laughs) And at the end of that, Heather will lead us in some uh, glorious chanting. Sounds good. Sounds good. (laughs) 
Thank you. Thank you.